On this two-part special edition of Life in the Grooves, I talk with Grammy Award-winning conductor, composer, arranger, and trumpeter, Jeff Tysick. In this episode, Jeff shares his philosophy on what he believes is key to making good music. I was attracted to Miles Davis, but also Igor Stravinsky. And my audiences have been subjected to my barometer of what's good and bad, because I'm not going to play something that I don't really feel touches my soul, my spirit, that really moves me in some way. Jeff also talks about his special relationship with fellow trumpet virtuoso Alan Vizzuti and the concerto they created together for legendary trumpeter and band leader, Doc Severinsen. So we go to the first rehearsal and Doc starts to play our piece. He stops the band and he says, I want you to come up on stage and sit next to me while I'm doing this. And I'm thinking, boy, I hope this works. And you'll also learn about how Jeff, in his role as conductor, navigates and manages the many personalities that make up an orchestra. I mean, bass players, the guys that play the big basses, they tend to be like big teddy bears. They're back there, they're not saying much, they're kind of smiling, they're doing their thing. The concertmaster, they're flamboyant. If you can say the conductor is the president, then the concertmaster is the vice president. All this and much more on part two of this special edition of Life in the Grooves. We invite you to visit our website at lifeinthegrooves.com where you can subscribe, listen to your favorite episodes, or follow us on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out our new YouTube channel at Life in the Grooves Podcast. And now, here is part two of my conversation with Jeff Tysick. If you look up your bio on your website, the first thing that pops up is a, a quote that says, there are two types of music, good and bad. And you reference the great Duke Ellington, um, quoting him saying, I've never drawn lines about what I'll write, play, or think about as long as it's good. How do you characterize the difference between the two? I mean, is there such a thing as bad music? Uh, I think there is, um, and how how to describe it, um, you know, I, I mean, it's funny, the first thing that comes to my head is is some of the, uh, like, teeny bop music of the late 50s and early 60s, you know, mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, some of those artists, you know, that were doing the surf movies and some of those songs, and I mean, they, you know, I mean, they're, they're, there's kind of fun, trite little things, but I, I don't really think it's great music, I mean, there's no phenomenal message there. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, I was attracted to Miles Davis, but also Igor Stravinsky, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and some of the great, uh, American songbook composers. And, you know, when you listen to like early Sinatra singing Cole Porter and, uh, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein and, you know, all these Vernon Duke and all these great songwriters where, you know, the song, the, the lyrics were incredible. The harmonies were beautiful. There was a message in the music. Um, and, and the same thing, if you go and listen to uh, Stravinsky and Mozart, 
uh, and Beethoven, th there's something about the humanity and the intellectual value of that music that draws you in and makes you feel something. And there are, there's a whole uh, you know, period of contemporary music where, you know, most of the compositions were written uh, by uh, mathematical and theoretical uh, computations, basically. There wasn't really a lot of soul, what I would call soul in the music. And and you can tell, I mean, it's just, it might be interesting. It's it's not interesting to me, but it maybe for five minutes. And, and I also have to say, you know, I think one of the most brilliant uh, jazz artists ever is uh, Charlie Parker, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, the flurry of notes and the repetition of patterns. I mean, after a while, I'm really bored with it. I, I can't listen to Charlie Parker that much. Uh, you know, I would much rather listen to John Coltrane or Miles Davis. I mean, there's something more spiritual about that playing for me, for my ears, you know? Yeah. So I think it it is a judgment, but I will say, uh, you know, I was actually I was just in driving home, uh, you know, back from Buffalo because it's about an hour and a half from where I live near outside of Rochester part of the year. And I, I decided, OK, I'm on Sirius and I'm, I'm just going to flip through every single channel and listen for a little bit. And, you mm -hmm. know, it was funny. I, I found something good on every channel. And then there was a something, okay, got to turn this off. <laughs> I'm not into this, you know, yeah. but whether yeah. it was rock or country or blues, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so I think it's a personal thing. And my audiences have been subjected to my barometer of what's good and bad, because I'm not going to play something that I don't really feel touches my soul, my spirit, that really moves me in some way. I'm not going to perform it whether it's a classical piece or whether it's, you know, a, a rock and roll piece, it's got to touch me. Uh, so, you know, I have my preferences of what I find exciting and, and meaningful. And, and uh, that's what I try to put on stage. Now, one of the things I was curious about, because you came out of the Eastman School of Music studying both classical and jazz, and then ultimately ended up working with Chuck Mangione, where you may have been leaning more towards the jazz world, were you ever torn between the world of classical and the world of jazz, or did you equally embrace both? Well, I, I was, I think, uh, more in the, the jazz world for a long time, but I loved classical music. And I, you know, th they knew at Eastman, they sort of figured out who I was, so I, I wasn't getting many opportunities to play classical music there. But as time went on, uh, and, and I knew that I wanted to compose music that was sort of outside the box of uh, jazz. And I ended up uh, in kind of my 40s going back. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't register as a student, but I studied privately with this great American composer, Samuel Adler. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then I really started to think about music uh, differently, about how I was going to write music. And of course, at the time, I'm also... Uh, you know, conducting, and even though I was conducting what are the POPs programs, well, you know, sometimes on the POPs programs, there's a lot of classical music that you have to be able to conduct and converse intelligently with the musicians and make it work. So I, I had to do all of that. I had to learn, you know, the Firebird of Stravinsky and, you know, great, uh, other great pieces. Um, so I, I always 
loved classical music. I didn't, it wasn't my, my focus and my forte, but as time has, uh, you know, gone on, I've been doing more and more and more of it. And now actually, uh, some of the pops concerts I do are basically classical Philharmonic concerts because you're, I'm doing these big pieces, you know, like Leonard Bernstein, uh, you know, uh, symphonic dancers from West Side Story. Okay. You go, well, it's West Side Story. It's Broadway. No. This is this is a symphonic piece that he wrote, which is as good as as almost anything out there. And it's really tough to conduct and, and to make it work with a symphony orchestra. So I, I would say I'm I'm a hybrid for sure. And actually, one of my early uh, influences, it was one recording. I'll never forget this. The guy's name was David Amram. He's an American composer. Actually, I think he still lives in New York City. Um, he was a big New York City guy in the, in the 70s when I was at Eastman. And he came out with an album. It was called No More Walls. And he had written a lot of music for uh, Shakespeare productions, this incidental music that was contemporary American music and chamber pieces. And then also on the same album, he was with a rhythm section playing jazz French horn. So, wow. you know, that was an inspiration to me that there were people doing it. And Bernstein is, is another, you know, he's in, included all mm -hmm. kinds of jazz influences, Latin influences in his music, and also, you know, straight classical. And of course, I mean, the father of all that really is George Gershwin. Right. And uh, he has created some masterpieces that... Again, they, they're sort of crossover pieces like, and I'm not talking about Rhapsody in Blue. I'm talking about, you know, the piano concerto in F or American in Paris or, you know, some of these great pieces. Um, he He's another guy, uh, whether he wrote Broadway musicals or American songbook or jazz pieces or contemporary pieces like concerto in F was at the time. Uh, he was a great influence. So, so I, I like the idea of no walls, just write what you feel, whatever it is. You're listening to the music of Jeff Tyzik featuring the Eastman Wind Ensemble with a work he composed titled Three Latin Dances. Now, what was the story behind the development of this piece? I understand that this came as a, um, a request from the conductor. Uh, Mark Scatterday, who is the uh, conductor of the Eastman Wind Ensemble, was going to be performing a concert with the Wind Ensemble in Severance Hall in uh, Cleveland, one of the most revered concert halls in the country, and asked if I could write uh, an overture for them to play that start. The hall is very live, and he didn't want to start off with some piece that sort of you know brought the walls down. He wanted something that would grow. And you know, I again, I really love Latin music, and I thought about 
maybe creating a suite, you know, wind ensembles are normally going to play out this contemporary music or classical music. And I said, you know, I'm going to do something different. So I chose three dance forms. One is the danzon, which is a romantic Cuban dance. The other one is the cha-cha, which is also a Cuban dance. And the last one is the milonga, which is an Argentinian dance, which is a very bright, fast, uh, energetic dance. And I created a little suite of these three dances uh, for the wind ensemble. And I'm getting bands, uh, wind ensembles from all over the country that are calling me up and buying this piece to play it. They, they, it's for some reason people really, really like it and the word has gotten around. So wind ensembles really connect with this piece. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just different facets of, uh, of who I am. So much of um, who you are and what you do is reflected in the uh, programming that you create. And earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you went to study um, privately with the great American composer Samuel Adler. What was special about that mentorship and how did he help you grow musically? Well, he's a brilliant teacher. Uh, I When I went to see him, I, I have, was in such a bad place uh, mentally about music. I just, I wasn't even able to write four bars of music at that time. I mean, I could do arrangements and that kind of thing, but I mean, to compose music, I, I wasn't, I, I just, I don't know. I, I was just in a place where I, I, I didn't know how to, how to go about it even. Uh, I, I, I sort of, uh, you know, was really down on myself and he was, he was amazing. He, we talked and he said, okay, I want you to go home and I want you to come back next week and I want you to write 12 melodies and write each with a different instrument in mind. So write something, you know, for flute, for trombone, for trumpet, for violin, whatever it is, write a melody, just 12 bars, come back in. So I came back in and he, he played through them and he said, okay, yeah. He said, so let's pick one. And let's work on 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 a sonata. I'm like, what? I can't even write four bars. You know, okay, right. So I, I I did pick trumpet, and then he and I was saying, well, Sam, should I go back and study counterpoint and theory? He says, no, you don't need to do that. You know. So then we start looking at at this trumpet melody, and he started constructing harmonies based on combinations of the notes I had put on the page. And I had just never thought of that before. I thought, oh, you have to have a chord and a melody over the top of it. No, this was a whole different way of constructing music that he just pulled back the curtains uh, and, and like the floodgates opened. I was, it was amazing. You know, then I came back the next week and I had 30 bars written for trumpet and piano. Then the next week I had 60. And and I mean, it. he just somehow push the right button in me. And I think he's done that with a lot of people. But there's kind of a funny story about it. I had just gotten a Mac Plus computer <laughs> way back then. And I had a music program on it. It was a, you know, where you could put the notes in, it would print out the music, but it could also play back with a, you know, with a terrible trumpet sound and a piano. So I'd go into my lessons with Sam. He would sit there and he'd start to, he wasn't really a great pianist. He'd start to play the pieces. And like 15 minutes later, we're, we're still on measure 12, you know? And I said, Sam, w- would you like to hear a recording? He said, oh, you mean you, you got musicians together and made a recording of this? I said, no, 
I, I did it on my uh, synthesizer and computer. Oh, no, I don't want to hear that. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so about four weeks later, after getting pretty far into the piece, I, I, I said, Sam, I, you know, I, I could... Okay, he said, play the damn recording. You know, he was kind of he frustrated. <laughs> I put the recording on, and his eyes were like E.T. I mean... It was un. He he was like, Amazing. wow! I can't believe this, you know. And wow. then every week I went in after that, I said, "Did you bring a recording?" <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was kind of funny to to have that experience with him. And then he, I was writing an orchestral piece at the time, and he said, "Okay, you, I I want to hear your record." I said, "Sam, this has got so many time changes, and it's got all of these variations of of meter and everything." I said, "I I, I don't think I can record make a recording of this with a computer." He said, "Figure it out." <laughs> so, <laughs> and I and I did actually, and I was able to come in. And at one point, he said he said something which I thought was really mind blowing. He said, "I think if some." composers some great composers had had this tool i think they would have made some different choices in the music wow. they created and i thought that was a very profound statement i mean the computer isn't writing the piece it's just playing it back you're writing the piece From the album Honor, Portraits of America, that is the music of Jeff Tysak and the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra with Alpine Garden. Now this particular suite was inspired by the uh, beautiful landscape of the Colorado Rockies. And uh, how did you approach this particular work? Well, I've been going to Vail, Colorado for 25 years to conduct uh, both the Rochester Philharmonic in the early days and now the Dallas Symphony for the past 10 years. We, we do a week out there in, uh, in July as part of the Bravo Music Festival. And I, I, I had never been in Colorado. Uh, I was there with Chuck, but we, I never got further than Red Rocks or, or Denver. And when I went out to Vail and we left Denver and we're driving out to Vail, all of a sudden I was in the mountains and I, I got chills. So I, I wanted to write a piece uh, that was, uh, you know, reflective of my many years out there. And I got to meet, again, you know, talk about musician getting to meet people. I mean, I, I got to spend time with Jerry Ford, President Ford, on a number of occasions. And I wrote some music for him to honor him. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was it was a, a very moving experience to be in, out there. So I wrote this suite called Bravo, Colorado. First movement is Majestic Mountains, and it's a big fanfare-ish kind of a piece with, with by the way, brass and timpani. <laughs> and the last movement 
is called Whitewater, and it's about rafting. And it's a very exciting uh, piece with all these kind of twists and turns in the piece, uh, very positive and beautiful. But I was walking uh, with my wife, Jill. We took the gondola up to the mountaintop in July, and we're walking up there through an alpine garden. I mean, I could hear these birds uh, chirping and singing. I, and, and the sound, there was, there was no sound up there except for the wind and the birds and the insects. And I wrote this piece, and you can hear there are bird calls in the front, played by the flutes and the oboe, and they're answering each other. And I wanted to create this moment of this time of being there, you know, with Jill and experiencing this together. And there was an, an actual formal Alpine garden right next to the Ford Amphitheater where we played all of our concerts. And that Alpine garden was created by Betty Ford. And so I dedicated this piece to Betty Ford and actually got to play it for her in the Ford Amphitheater one summer. Now, another pivotal moment in your history was working and collaborating with fellow virtuoso trumpeter Alan Vizzuti, uh, and the two of you got the opportunity to create a concerto for the uh, great Doc Severinsen. Tell me about that relationship and um, how the two of you um, ended up writing a concerto for Doc. Yeah, well, Doc uh, Alan is from Missoula, Montana, and in uh, his father owned a music store there. And it's very customary, still happens today. Uh, a lot of great artists are invited to come into a town and, and work with the high school band. And they'll come in for a week and they'll do master mm -hmm. classes and play a piece with the, the uh, concert band or wind ensemble. And so Doc was invited to come to Missoula, Montana and play with the band. And his uh, dad, uh, Lito, uh, asked Doc if Doc would be... Uh, willing to hear his son Alan play the trumpet. And Doc said, yeah, sure, bring him over to my hotel room tomorrow morning. So <laughs> they go over to the hotel at like, you know, nine o'clock in the morning or something. The door opens and, and, you know, Doc's in there. He's sitting on the bed in his shorts. <laughs> and, and there's Alan. And Alan takes the trumpet out and starts to play. And Doc is like completely blown away. And that begins a, you know, a basically, uh, you know, 60 year relationship uh, that they've had. So Alan came to Eastman School a year behind me and, and I was uh, called the big brother. You know, the first week is freshman week and some of us go back early to work with the freshmen. And as a, as a freshman myself, you know, I was a pretty good trumpet player. And, and I said, wow, next year I'm going to get to be in this ensemble and this ensemble. Because, you know, when you're in freshman, you get in the, the, the first groups. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so I'm like, OK, uh, next year. So. The first day I, I show up for the big brother thing and I walk down where the practice rooms are and I hear this trumpet playing and I'm going like, I have never heard anything like this in my life. And I don't think my chances are too good going forward, you know, <laughs> and I walked over and it was Alan and he is, he's just amazing. He, he's not only amazing trumpet player, 
He's an amazing human being. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you how much I love that guy. Uh, mm -hmm. We've just done so many things together. So anyway, we, we were great friends all throughout Eastman and, and we performed uh, together in the jazz bands and, and stuff. And uh, so uh, we left school and we said, you know, we wanted to stay in touch and he was going to go out to Los Angeles. And, and actually the first thing he ended up doing was he became friends with uh, uh Chick Corea, he was invited to play with Chick's band and mm -hmm. they became very good friends. And he ended up like touring the world with Chick. And, you know, he and I stayed in touch. And he was also, when he was in LA, he was playing in the studios. Yeah, yeah. I, I recently um, heard an interview that Alan did with Arturo Sandoval. And um, Alan was talking about playing film scores in Hollywood, in the, in the Hollywood studios. And how there was very little or no rehearsal at all. It was pretty much you had to yeah, sight read. Well, you know, they just walk in cold, they sit down and there's, you know, Jerry Goldsmith up there and the movie is, uh, you know, a Papillon and okay, boom, start recording. That's it. It goes, there's no rehearsing. You just start playing and they push the button. Time is money. So, um, Doc, he, and he had kept in touch with Doc and Doc asked Alan to write a concerto for him. And, uh, Alan, you know, was going to be working on it, but he was also traveling the world. And, and he called me and said, look, you know, Doc asked me to write this piece. And by that time, uh, I think I, I had done some, you know, I was on Chuck's albums that Doc had heard. Mm -hmm. And I think he, he knew my name, uh, which I find amazing, you know, but, but he knew my name. And uh, so he said, yeah, sure. If you and Jeff want to work on this, that would be fine. So Alan and I, when he was in town, you know, we worked on things and then he, he'd leave town and I'd work on, we'd be sending things back and forth to each other and little recordings and whatever. So we wrote this concerto for Doc and Doc was going to play it uh, for the first time in Baytown, Texas with the Baytown, Texas band. And I flew down to Baytown uh, and we stayed at the luxurious Holiday Inn where you look out your deck and you're looking at oil rigs and that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, so we go to the first rehearsal and, and I had never met Doc and I'm in the back of the hall and Doc starts to play our piece. And he stops the orchestra, uh, the uh, band and he says, is Jeff Tysak here? And I, I raise my hand. Yeah. yeah, he said, I want you to come up on stage and sit next to me while I'm doing this. Come up here right now. I'm like, Okay. And I'm thinking, boy, I hope this works, you know, but no it, it, pressure. Yeah. yeah, but it did end up working and we had a nice couple of days. And then I ended up uh, one night, Doc and I were on the balcony of his uh, room at the Holiday Inn and uh, we talked for like four hours and he was saying all these things he wanted to do, including recording the Tonight Show band. And uh, and I'm, I'm really thrilled to say that uh, we ended up doing all of them. From their Grammy Award-winning album produced by Jeff Tysak and Alan Vizzuti, that is The Tonight Show Band featuring Doc Severinsen, 
with their rendition of the Count Basie classic, One O'Clock Jump. Now, you and Alan Vizzuti also got an opportunity to um, develop a new type of pops program for the uh, Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. How did this all come about? So in 1980, uh, the general manager of the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, who was a, a trombone player himself, but he was a general manager, he knew us from our days at Eastman. And he said, how would you guys like to create a concert and perform with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra? And wow, we said, boy, that would be unbelievable. Because I think he had come to our, our jazz concerts with Ray Wright and heard our arrangements and stuff. He said, I think you guys would be terrific. Why don't you do this? So in 1980, uh, we got a shot to perform with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. And that was really the beginning of me, uh, you know, working and, and Alan as well, working with orchestras. And uh, we created a concert called High Class Brass. And we wrote these arrangements of, you know, jazz things. But we also, he wrote this hybrid suite called High Class Brass Suite, which was, was, was kind of like Beethoven, you know, meets jazz. I mean, it was really incredible, his music uh, that we played. And subsequent to that, we ended up, getting to do this with some phenomenal orchestras. I mean, St. Louis Symphony, the Minnesota Orchestra, Milwaukee Symphony. Um, so for a number of years after that, we did it. But the crazy thing, and I, I don't even know what this would be in today's dollars. We're, we're two nobodies. We get hired, and I found the contract about a month ago. And I, I, <laughs> wow. looked, I looked down at this contract, and our fee was $12,000 for two concerts, which let me tell you, today that's not bad. Back then, it was like a small fortune, even though part of it was we had to write the music and they were paying for that and everything. Right. I couldn't mm -hmm. believe that this guy invested that kind of money in us, uh, you know, these two kids. What you really did was create the model for the POPs programming in terms of the work that you're doing today. Absolutely. No more walls. Straight ahead. Good music. Yeah, absolutely. Every style, everything that we do. Yeah. And Alan is the same. I mean, we're always just trying to like just knock that wall a little further apart. listening to the exceptional trumpet playing of Alan Vizzuti and Jeff Tyzik from the suite composed by Vizzuti titled High Class Brass. One of the things that we had a chance to talk about a few months ago, which I, um, I find absolutely fascinating, is that there is this um, collective personality within each section of the orchestra, whether it's bass players, trumpeters, French <laughs> horn players, violinists, and as a conductor, how do you manage all of these groups within the orchestra, and how do you manage all of the personalities? Well, you know, each each orchestra is made up of, you know, 70 to 90 
completely independent individuals. Like every violinist does not sound exactly the same as the person next to them. I mean, it's a violin sound, but it's unique depending on how the person plays it, what their instrument sounds like, what their bow is like, and what their personality is. And, you know, you learn uh, with an orchestra over time, you learn who the humans are, and some are pretty quirky. Uh, some are very difficult to work with. Some are not. Some are, are really wonderful human beings. Uh, they're all incredibly creative. And so you're managing all of these different personalities all the time. And re recording and performing and rehearsing uh, and music is a very, very intense experience because what's on the page is only a guide. There are black notes sitting on these little black dots on the page and all these little markings that are, are things that tell you what to do. But that's just a starting point. You know, it's very, it's much, so much deeper than that, how you craft the music. And you're one person trying to take 70 racehorses and get them going all in the same direction, the same way at the same speed, uh, you know, at the same time. So it's, it's very difficult. Uh, but you know, sometimes it's, it's wonderful and easy. And other times there can be tense situations going on. And oftentimes when there's a tense situation, it has nothing to do with you even being in the room. So, somebody's father may have just passed away or, or so, you know, somebody's child just went to the hospital that morning. Or, you know, it could be things that have nothing to do with what you're doing, but it affects what you're doing. So being a conductor, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a whole part of that that's being a psychologist and trying to manage the moment with always, sometimes not a lot of great information about why things are going the way they're going. Um, but, you know, that, those are, those happen, they're more rare. Most of the time, everybody's in the room, they want to play their hearts out, and we're just trying to figure out together how to make the music work. I am somebody who, I, I will say to the orchestra, look, I can conduct this bar three different ways. What would you like to see? Now, a lot of conductors don't do that. They're just going to say, this is how I do it. I want them to say to me, you know what? We like that way better. Then I know when we get there, it's going to come out better. It's just who I am. Um, so I'm very collaborative with the musicians. And sometimes that goes a little awry. Uh, but I think what you and I were also talking about, I was kind of saying how it's funny. Uh, different sections, different instruments, the, the personalities of the players are, are really <laughs> interesting. I mean, bass players, the guys that play the big basses, they tend to be like big teddy bears. They're back there. They're not saying much. They're kind of smiling. They're doing their thing, you know? The the trumpet player, you know, he's the, the trumpet was once described as the lion of the orchestra because if a trumpet makes a mistake, you're going to hear it. If the if the second stand violin makes a mistake, you're probably not going to pick on that, but you're going to hear the trumpet. It's a pressure job. Those guys tend to be, you know, very, uh, very energetic, you know, very excitable. Um, French horn is one of the most difficult instruments in the world to play because of that small mouthpiece and because of you have to come in on these passages that are so delicate and be perfect. They tend to be very introverted, very kind of, uh, you know, very tight individuals. Um, the concert master, 
they're flamboyant. They're, they, they, you know, they want to just be leading. And, and basically they are sort of, if the, if you can say the conductor is the president, then the concert master is the vice president, you know, uh-huh. who thinks he should be the president, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, concert masters are gregarious. You know, they, they want to play they They want to lead the section. They want to lead the orchestra and the other string players look to them to follow how they're playing. So it's a very important role. And so they, their personality fits the role. Uh, some, in some orchestras, the principal second. Okay. So there's a whole, array mm-hmm. of second violins right. uh, some sometimes i think the principal seconds want to be the concert master and they're trying to be the concert master from their chair and there can be conflicts between them and the concert master it's funny so yeah I, I, it's it's been interesting to see these personalities sort of be the same in different orchestras mm-hmm. based on what instrument people are playing um now that we're coming out of the pandemic what do you look forward to the most now that people are getting back out there and um, audiences are coming back to see live performance again? Well, uh, to me, it's just a continuation uh, of what I've always felt and what I've always done. And that is just to put the most interesting, moving, uh, spiritual programs on stage. But I, I will say this. I am I'm not at the beginning of my career. Uh, I'm probably in the, in a much, you know, later part of my career. And to me, every time I get to do a concert, it's a privilege to walk on stage. It's a privilege to keep writing music and have orchestras playing it. And I want to try to keep creating meaningful projects and meaningful works. And, and there are a lot of young uh, musicians that I'm working with that I really admire. As a matter of fact, you did a podcast with one of them, Zach Jones. I mean, he's an amazing musician and I I get to work with people like him, uh, and enjoy that. So I'm just trying to, uh, put the most meaningful thing that I can on that stage and have the musicians be excited about it and the audience be excited about it. And that creates a perfect experience. Jeff Tysick, thank you so much for allowing me to have a window to look inside your career. There, there's so much more we could talk about, so many more things that you've done and things that, that we'll look forward to. Jeff, thank you again for, for joining me today. And thank you so much. Uh, really, really uh, honored and pleased to do it. My thanks to Jeff Tysick for sharing his amazing musical journey with us. You can check out all of Jeff's music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon Music. And be sure to subscribe to our show by visiting our website at lifeinthegrooves.com or lifeinthegroovespodcast.com. Life in the Grooves is produced by Tour de Force Entertainment Group. If you like what you've heard, Please take a moment to share, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Charles Urich. Thanks for listening.